The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Immunotherapy Has Arrived in Advanced BCC Collaborative Strategies for Making the Most of Novel Immune-Based Treatment. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash SDX860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. And so welcome, and uh, my name is uh, Carl Lewis. I'm a medical oncologist from the University of Colorado and have a great faculty, the experts in cutaneous malignancies, which will certainly make my job very easy tonight. Nikhil Kushalani from Moffitt Cancer Center and uh, Vishal Patel from um, George Washington School of Medicine. And today's agenda in brief, there's a pre-seminar prep which is looking at uh, dermato-oncology background on basal cell carcinoma. And then there'll be a presentation on immuno-oncology, the latest on immunotherapy advances in locally advanced and metastatic basal cell carcinoma, and then a tumor board, which will present some challenging case scenarios in discussion. And so without further ado, uh, I'd like to welcome Dr. Patel uh, to give current treatment challenges in the world's most common cancer. Thank you, Dr. Lewis, and thank you for including me in this session, and uh, thanks to Dr. Kushalani also as well uh, for including me and uh, for being a mentor uh, to me throughout my career. Uh, my name is uh, Vishal Patel. Uh, I am a dermato-oncologist and a Mohs surgeon at the GW Cancer Center in Washington, D.C. Uh, I focus on cutaneous malignancies. My practice is focused 100% on cutaneous malignancies, both from the earliest presentation up to advanced and metastatic tumors, uh, and I oversee our immunotherapy program. And I'm going to be taking us through uh, the current treatment challenges of the world's most common skin cancer. And for oncologists, you know, as, as a trained dermatologist and then having focused more on the medical oncology side of dermatology, this is very commonplace for us, but sometimes uh, when tumors become their advanced level, it's important to, to understand the foundation of where these tumors come from. As we know, skin cancer as a whole comprises the most uh, malignancies as a whole that uh, human beings suffer from, and basal cell carcinoma is the most common form of skin cancer, the most common form of any cancer. Uh, it's a disease of older patients generally, generally patients that are of lighter skin tones, and as we age, that incidence rate increases with time. It generally doubles as you go from your 40s to your 70s and 80s. But it's surprising, especially in my practice, that we are seeing this shift in the epidemic of skin cancer to much younger patients. I actually just saw a patient this week, 21 years old, with a morphia-formed basal cell on her forehead with really limited sun exposure. And so it's remarkable that we're seeing this shift, but it truly still is a disease of time uh, and of the elderly. These tumors are located in sun-exposed areas, not surprisingly. 85% of them are in the head and neck, and 20 to 30% of them may be on the nose. Now, those environmental risk factors that I just mentioned are generally focused around radiation exposure, whether in the form of sunlight, UV radiation exposure, tanning, or other medication light treatments that we utilize in dermatology, UVB or PUFA ionizing radiations, especially in patients who are young and may have had uh, total body radiation for a hematologic malignancy. It's not uncommon to see them have 50, 100 basal cells over the next 30, 40, 50 years of their life. 
And when we think about the pathogenesis of basal cell carcinoma, that UV light driver is the key driver of keratinocyte mutation, the mutagenesis that leads to basal cell carcinoma. And in fact, basal cell and its counterpart, its counterpart keratinocyte carcinoma, squamous cell carcinoma, have the greatest mutational burden of any human cancer cell. Uh, specifically in basal cell carcinoma, there's one driver mutation that's almost always uh, exists in all basal cell carcinoma, and that's the hedgehog signaling pathway and a mutation in the patch receptor can lead to constitutively active smoothing uh, and thus the development of basal cell carcinomas. And we'll talk a little bit about that since that has been the focus of targeted treatment. But these tumors present as just essentially non-healing sores. They can go on for years or even decades before they can become known. They hide under the surface and they tend to look like waxy papules or pearly papules. They may be ulcerated. Most commonly or most uh, characteristically have telangiectasias overlying them. And if you are interested in dermatology or dermoscopy, that's usually those features that we look for, telangiectasias or signs of ulceration as a uh, clue that this lesion is a small basal cell carcinoma. These lesions are slow growing. They, we say sometimes they double in size every one to two years. They may grow at a half a centimeter in that same time phase. And metastases is extremely rare, and so we generally treat 99% of these on their initial presentation. But that presentation can be quite varied. The most common nodule or ulcerative type is exactly what it sounds like, nodules that have ulcerated. The rodent ulcer with an ulceration uh, of the lesion that has lost its blood supply or died off from its blood supply in the center. And patients can have multiple or just one single one. You can see that characteristic telangiectasias that I noted uh, in the top left-hand corner image. But other subtypes exist, including pigmented lesions, uh, which are much more common in patients with darker skin tones or, or, uh, or have a potential to tan uh, rather than those patients that really just burn uh, from, from UV radiation exposure. But the more difficult ones to treat may be the morphia form or even the superficial one, which we list as a low-risk tumor. But as you can see in those images, uh, they can go on for years being suspicious of some type of non-malignant process, an eczematous process or psoriasiform psoriasis-like process, and, and have delayed treatment as a result from that. The morphia form ones can hide as they look like scars and may not even be picked up for decades before they become, begin, begin to ulcerate and then uh, there is suspicion for malignancy. Now, when we think as opposed to other types of tumors, I know uh, the whole gamut of oncology worries about overall survival of patients. Well, basal cell is a little bit of a different cohort because these tumors in general have just a risk assessment profile of recurrence. The, the disease-specific death and nodal metastasis is so exceedingly rare that we really stratify these tumors and the NCCN does by risk fa factors that are either low risk or high risk for recurrence. And it's important to differentiate that from other tumors because sometimes we discuss and think about that all together, but really recurrence is not the same as necessarily nodal or disease-specific uh, poor outcomes. And because of that, it's important for us to know what we are treating when we think about those large and bigger tumors, and we'll talk a little bit about how to assess that. A little different than what we do with the NCCN, as we see here, those tumors that are low risk tend to be more well-defined, a histology of nodular or superficial patterns. There's 
immunocompetent patients. It's their first tumor. They haven't had radiation or any other type of treatment. It's a primary presentation, and there's no perineural invasion. And the dichotomy to that is the opposite. The tumors that are uh, bigger on cosmetically sensitive areas, like the mask areas of the face, patients that are immunosuppressed, tumors that have recurred after one or two treatments, whether destructive th treatment or a surgical treatment, and have uh, have still recurred, or have a more aggressive histologic profile and have received radiation either as primary treatment for the tumor or for some other type of malignancy or other condition, uh, as well as perineal invasion. And so until recently, actually until last year, uh, staging for basal cell is just really not even part of our thought process. Um, and for all of the AJCC staging systems that we utilize for all different types of tumors, and especially for the counterpart in keratinocyte carcinoma, so much work has been done into how squamous cell carcinoma should be staged and what staging system really helps us to predict nodal metastases and disease-specific death. We really don't have a useful system for basal cell. In fact, the AJCC system is the same as the squamous cell carcinoma system. And these are not the same tumors. They do not behave the same when it relates to those outcomes. So it's difficult for us to utilize that system. The group that's done a lot of work on staging out of the Brigham, the Dermato-Oncology Group, has recently published a, a uh, analysis of tumors, those with poor outcomes, larger tumors, a large subset throughout their uh, database, which, which is over, I think, 12 years of tumors treated at that institution and able to identify specific risk factors that really do portend a poor prognosis that we associate with staging systems, nodal metastases and disease-specific death. So that alter alternative staging system uh, that they created for squamous cell carcinoma, well, they have now done the same for basal cell carcinoma. I've included that here because that's something certainly that pops up in the dermato-oncology literature. It's discussed a lot amongst dermato-oncologists in Europe and in the US. Uh, and I think it's uh, in, in that literature, and I think it's great for our medical oncologists to also be aware of something that's new that the, that the dermatologists certainly utilize. That system stratifies tumors as essentially in a binary way. T1, or low-risk tumors for poor outcomes, and T2, high-risk for poor outcomes. And those high-risk features are tumors that are quite large, four centimeters. They're located on the head and neck, or they invade beyond the subcutaneous fat. And when we see the Kaplan-Meier curves of that nearly 1,000 patients that they, uh, they analyzed over that 12-year period, you can see a separation uh, of those tumors as it relates to metastases and death, very different from that recurrence risk that we think about NCCN. And this is something that certainly is much more useful and helpful as we think about systemic therapy and more aggressive therapy for that really small subset of tumors uh, that, that now we have many more options for. Now, while that staging uh, system kind of structure that we utilize here in the U.S. so frequently for all types of uh, solid and, and, and liquid malignancies, for basal cell carcinoma sometimes just doesn't make a lot of sense uh, because most basal cell carcinomas really are a function of treatment. And in the European guidelines uh, recently put out a different way to think about staging or assessment of tumors that I think makes a lot more sense, and I've incorporated this much more into my practice. And that's just how easy or how difficult tumors are to treat. And I think this begins to get into the discussion of what should we do with a tumor or in a multi-display team-based discussion of how effectively can we treat the specific lesion in front of us. And so 
this European uh, system where, where it identifies tumors that may be common uh, but complex treatment for some reason uh, may be difficult uh, for the patient uh, is a subgroup. Uh, they separate out those patients that have genetic germline mutations like Gorland syndrome that have a high number, hundreds of tumors over the life, uh, and it may have many at initial presentation. Large tumors in non-functional areas, non-critical uh, cosmetic areas versus those that are large in functional areas like the ones that we see where ears and nose have appeared to be completely eroded by the tumor. And then the giant ones that are invading deeply that they expose uh, bone, muscle, other types of uh, vital deep structures. So how do we treat tumors? Again, that binary thought process of low or easy to treat tumors really have uh, a, a wide variety of options. Any kind of destructive treatment may be a, a, a potential option amenable to a curatage, scraping and burning, cryotherapy, um, other types of destructive means using uh, destructive lasers, uh, chemical uh, cauterization, or standard surgical excision with small margins, which is considered four millimeters for a standard basal cell carcinoma, or even primary radiation therapy in non-surgical candidates. If margins are not, uh, clear margins are not obtained, or if there's a concern about uh, residual tumor that's left behind, we generally like to resect these tumors, if it is possible, with a complete circumferential, peripheral, and deep margin analysis. I know a mouthful to, to say as well as to understand, but essentially complete margin analysis surgery, whether that's Mohs surgery or a two-vision tort technique or other types of surgical techniques where you're looking at the 100% margin when those positive margins are not obtained the first time. Higher-risk tumors, we almost always want to be able to start off with complete margin surgery when possible. But I think it's important to realize that doesn't mean that high-risk basal cell has to have this treatment. I think the, the discussion really has to be what is the appropriate assessment of a tumor as high risk. And I think especially uh, here in the U.S., we sometimes assume that because something is appropriate to have complete margin analysis surgery, it must have it. And that's not necessarily the same synonymous meaning. Standard surgical excision or uh, with larger margins is also appropriate. And if any situation where there's positive margins and if resection is not a possibility, then we consider adjuvant radiation or even primary radiation if they cannot go under uh, surgery or systemic therapy in the setting of a discussion of a large multidisciplinary team or other trusted advisors if you are not in a multidisciplinary uh, setting. So we're going to just briefly talk about large and locally advanced tumors. So we've talked about the low risk and high risk for recurrence, but what about that small subset of tumors that really are beyond that management approach that we've laid out there? Well, this is where that multidisciplinary approach really matters, especially for cutaneous tumors, keratinocyte carcinomas involving the radiation oncologists, head and neck surgeons, dermato-oncology or most surgeons, uh, and medical oncologists. And we have targeted therapies, hedgehog inhibitors, as well as now immunotherapies, which we'll discuss later. And I'll focus just on a patient of mine where we initiated hedgehog inhibitor therapy. Vismotagib and sonotagib are both approved for use in locally advanced basal carcinoma, vismotagib having approval in metastatic as well. And though, although there is good response, toxicity really is the issue that arises with these patients. And this is a patient who underwent therapy and clearly had a response very quickly 
and after six months almost looks like a complete response or at least from a clinical evaluation of just scar being present. But really, as I noted, it's the toxicity and secondary resistance that comes up that really proves to be a problem for these patients. Almost every patient will have some level of side effect. I almost tell any patient that's starting on this that the main three, the muscle spasms, which can be quite debilitating and patients can have difficulty walking, getting out of bed, depending on how severe they are. The alopecia, where they lose their hair as a result of the inhibition of the hedgehog pathway, which is important in hair growth. And the dyskusia, the loss of taste, probably the most impactful to the quality of life of patients, not being able to taste food, having that simple joy of a good meal uh, can be altered for these patients. I tell patients that I almost anticipate uh, that, that on some level, one of those three will impact them, and then we will have to figure out how to deal with the toxicity, which we'll discuss with Dr. Kushalani later, uh, uh, strategies and techniques to, ha- to minimize those, those toxicity. It's important to note that that toxicity can really impact the quality of life, but also lead to discontinuation. The major clinical trials, one out of five patients discontinued because of those AEs, and in, in real life, I, I feel like it's, it's even higher than that. Uh, because these drugs can be difficult to tolerate. But that doesn't mean that they should not be initiated or that there are not strategies to improve this. So I'll just end by saying that when we have that kind of toxicity, when we have patients with very difficult tumors, really clear, all cutaneous tumors, but especially the keratinocyte carcinomas, I may be biased, so that's what I focus on, but really require a team-based approach, really have, it's a non, uh, this disease does not lie in a silo, but that we need dermato-oncology, most colleagues, head and neck surgery colleagues, especially nodal disease may be involved, reconstructive colleagues, medical oncology to help steer the adjuvant and systemic therapy and radiation when margins cannot be clearly obtained, as well as the follow-up, the uh, radiology follow-up that we need to assess tumors before treatment and then afterwards, and especially key, especially with the hedgehog inhibitors, nursing help, social work help. They really help the patient along their journey so that Uh, preemptively educating and tackling those side effects from the get-go can improve the compliance of the patients for those first-line therapies. So take-home messages from our foundational discussion around BCC management is that it's important to consider the patient-specific factors case-by-case when determining whether a patient is a good candidate for surgery or even non-surgical treatments and understanding how to assess recurrence versus more important poor outcomes like nodal metastases and death, and that all treatments are not equal and that there is surgical fatigue, treatment fatigue. These are all valid concerns for us to understand what approach we should take. The tolerability of hedgehog inhibitors varies substantially and it can really impact the quality of life. Having a game plan from the get-go and discussing that with the patient and having a team-based approach really makes a difference for these patients to, to be able to tolerate that. And then being able to pivot quickly if it's not working using that multidisciplinary team and resource. Again, if you don't have that setting, having trusted advisors within the community that you can go to to pivot quickly so that the management is successful. And that really is the cornerstone of BCC care. On that point, I'd like to pass it back to you, Dr. Lewis, for our next discussion. Well, thank you very much. That was fantastic. Um, switch gears a little bit here and talk about immunotherapy as a new cornerstone of locally advanced and metastatic basal cell carcinoma treatment and review what the key evidence uh, uh, for the use of this agent is. 
So why, what should be used for, for, for the treatment of resistant basal cell carcinoma? Should it be immunotherapy? And some of the rationale behind this before uh, this, the studies that were done that we'll get to is that the immune system plays a critical role in surveillance and eradication of non-melanoma skin cancers. And this is exemplified by the fact that solid organ transplant patients have a, a very high risk of non-melanoma skin cancers, including a 65-fold uh, increased risk of cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma and a tenfold increased risk for basal cell carcinoma. And the tumor microenvironment of UV-induced tumors is known to be immunosuppressive. And it's been shown that the innate immune system can eradicate UV-associated tumors, and this is exemplified by amiquimod, which is a TLR7 agonist in basal cell carcinoma, which is a topical that can eradicate these, some of these tumors. And immunotherapy has certainly shown activity in other cutaneous malignancies as well known. Now, whether this is related to the high tumor mutation burden or other factors is debatable, but it certainly has activity in these tumors, including melanoma, Merkel cell carcinoma with both PD-1 and PD-01 antibodies, and then cutaneous squamous cell car and then cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma as well. And I always like to put down here before we looked at this in basal, why not try it? It seems to work in all other cancer types, so it should just get tried. But in terms of tumor mutation burden, basal cell carcinomas, as was mentioned earlier, are derived from epidermal keratinocytes that are chronically exposed to UV light, which is a well-known mutagen. And this contributes it to having one, if not the highest, tumor mutation burden in cancer. And this was a study published back in 2017 they looked at tumor mutation burden in basal cell carcinomas versus non-basal cell carcinomas and much higher average tumor mutation burden in basal cell carcinomas. And here's another uh, study that was published in 2019 that basically just looked at various tumor types and said, what's the percentage that had a tumor mutation burden of greater than 10 mutations per megabase? And on the right-hand side of this slide here, basal cell carcinoma certainly leads the way. And then you have cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma and melanoma right next to it. So these cutaneous malignancies are heavily mutated. In terms of checkpoint inhibitors, we certainly won't spend a lot of time with this. I'm sure everybody's very familiar, but just in brief, you know, on the, in the lymphoid tissue, um, dendritic cell presents antigen to the T cell, and CTLA-4 is a neg negative regulator of T cell activation, and ipilimumab, which is an anti-CTLA-4 antibody, uh, is used to treat melanoma. And then when you have the tumor microenvironment, the T cell recognizes the cancer cell antigen in the context of MHC, and PD-1 and PD-L1 have this neg negative, um, um, a repressive interaction, and there's PD-1 antibodies, and anti pdl one antibodies. And there was case reports that started to demonstrate that basal cell carcinoma could respond to immunotherapy. And this is a, a case report that was published a number of years ago now that looked at um, a basal cell carcinoma that was metastatic, that was resistant to a hedgehog inhibitor, and they were treated with the PD-1 antibody, nivolumab, and you can see the liver metastasis here at baseline, and then at four months into therapy, uh, responding uh, to the immunotherapy. And, there, and also the phase one study of semiplumab, um, they saw that there was a patient with metastatic basal cell carcinoma that maintained a partial response uh, poached treatment follow-up at 12 plus months. And here's a patient with lung metastasis uh, at baseline, and you can see at week 24 a response. So there was rationale for using immunotherapy in this tumor type, and then some uh, case reports 
that demonstrated potential activity. And so this led to a phase two study of semiplumab, which is a PD-1 antibody uh, in locally advanced and metastatic basal cell carcinoma. So there was actually two groups. Um, group one was patients with metastatic basal cell carcinoma, either nodal or distant metastasis, and group two was patients with locally advanced basal cell carcinoma. It was a phase two study. There was no comparator arm. Um, they were all given semiplumab, 350 milligrams every three weeks for up to 93 weeks, and the primary endpoint was overall response rate by independent review. There were some key secondary endpoints, including duration of response, progression-free survival, overall survival. But the key inclusion criteria is that patients had histologically confirmed basal cell carcinoma, and importantly, prior progression or intolerance to hedgehog inhibitor therapy, or no better than stable disease after nine months of hedgehog inhibitor. They had to have uh, measurable disease and a good performance status, could not have had um, autoimmune problems or prior immunotherapy exposure. And here's the patient characteristics for the locally advanced cohort. There was 84 patients with locally advanced basal cell carcinoma treated on this study. The median age was 70 years, as would be expected for basal cell carcinoma predominant men. And the uh, primary tumor site location for the locally advanced, 75% of patients had head and neck primaries. Only 7% had primaries on the trunk. And 71% of the patients had uh, discontinued hedgehog therapy for disease progression. And here is the response rate. So the overall response rate for the 84 patients with locally advanced basal cell carcinoma uh, was 31%, including five patients with a complete response, 21 patients with partial response. Um, only about 11% of patients had progressive disease as their best response. And so overall disease control was quite good at 80%. And on the right-hand side of this slide is the swimmer's plot for patients uh, that responded. And what I always like to point out is that the, the green triangles here are partial response, and the purple circles are stable disease. And what you can see is that the not a large number of patients responded at the time of first assessment. It wasn't until second, third assessment that you started to see responses. So if any of you out there have treated cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma with uh, PD-1 antibodies or immunotherapy, often we see responses very, very quickly in that tumor type. But with basal cell carcinoma, the responses can be delayed. So I do think you need to stick with this agent if patients otherwise are not progressing clearly and or tolerating the therapy. And here's just some um, photographic representations of a couple of patients who responded to semiplumab. Uh, this is a patient who uh, progressed on prior hedgehog inhibitor therapy. Here's his baseline photo with this large ulcerated tumor. And you can see it post-treatment follow-up, just scar in that location. Another patient with a large ulcerated tumor on his forehead and at post-treatment follow-up, very good uh, continued response to therapy. So they can be quite dramatic. Now, in terms of response to semiplumab by PD-L1 status, it doesn't seem to matter, kind of like other cutaneous malignancies. So this is looking at patients 
who are PDL1 expression less than 1% versus greater than or equal to 1%. And you can see that the overall response rate 26% for PDL1 negative, 27% for PDL1 positive patients. So, not allotted, no, there's no difference in terms of response based on PDL1 status, and disease control rate is quite good for both patient populations. So, this does not appear to be a biomarker for use. And here's the median progression-free survival curves, uh, median progression-free survival 19.3 months, and median overall survival not reached. So just recently at uh, the AACR meeting earlier this year, we had the analysis of the, the phase two results for the metastatic cohort. And this was 54 patients with metastatic disease. Their uh, median age was 63 years old. Again. 70% uh, were male, so predominant male population. Um, most had received prior hedgehog inhibitor therapy, um, with 76% uh, progressing on hedgehog treatment. Now, one thing that's interesting here is that the primary site of tumor, uh, in contrast to the locally advanced, was predominantly on the trunk area, with 46% of patients having a truncal primary, 41% having a, a, a head and neck primary. So, a little bit dis different in terms of um, where the primary starts for these two cohorts of patients. Um, 35% had distant-only disease, um, and 53% had distant plus nodal metastasis. And the overall response rate for the 54 patients with metastatic basal cell carcinoma was 24%. There was one complete response, uh, 12 partial response. There was 10, about 10% of the patients that had non-complete response, non-progressive disease. These were patients that were deemed by independent review not to have uh, um, uh, measurable disease at baseline, so they couldn't be lumped in of whether they had a complete or partial, you just couldn't, or, or a partial response, you just couldn't say they didn't progress or have a complete response. Um, and 29%, 30% of the patients had progressive disease. But again, an overall good disease control rate of 63% of the patients. And here's a swimmer's plot for uh, the metastatic cohort. So these are the responders. And among the responders, the median time to response was four months. Again, if you look, uh, the, the green triangle is, is, the, is, the, is the time of response. And you can see some patients didn't respond, like this patient out here at the bottom, until 10 months. So you, again, do have to give these patients time uh, if they are tolerating the therapy. The estimated median duration of response by independent review was 16.7 months. And if you just look at landmark, six-month duration of response was 100%, and at 12 months, 54%. Here's the overall survival curve. And here's the progression-free survival curve for the metastatic cohort. So in terms of safety, there really wasn't any new safety signals seen. It was very much in line with what is seen with other PD-1 antibodies, what has been seen with other studies of semiplumab uh, in other tumor types. No new safety signals. The most common uh, treatment-related adverse events, 25% uh, had fatigue, 14% uh, with uh, pruritus. Most common grade 3 and above treatment-related adverse events, uh, colitis, uh, and adrenal insufficiency. So you see 
um, the, the co common endocrinopathies, the common toxicities that you see with other PD-1 agents, but importantly, there was no grade four or five immune-related adverse events reported. And when you looked at uh, quality of life, there did appear to be a clinically meaningful improvement or at least stability in quality of life and functional status with semiplumab uh, while maintaining a low overall symptom burden. And so really the take-home messages for semiplumab in uh, advanced basal cell carcinoma is that this is the first systemic therapy to show clinical benefit in patients with locally advanced BCC after hedgehog inhibitor therapy. Um, there was a 31% uh, response rate for the locally advanced cohort, 12-month duration of response of 85%, uh, and importantly, baseline pdl one expression did not appear to be associated with efficacy. There was acceptable safety profile that was consistent with other pdl one antibodies and with previous reports of semiplumab and other tumor types, uh, so no uh, surprises there. And these results led to the FDA approval of semiplumab in patients with locally advanced basal cell carcinoma, previously treated with a hedgehog inhibitor, or for whom a hedgehog inhibitor therapy was deemed not appropriate, and as well as approval in metastatic basal cell carcinoma, previously treated with a hedgehog inhibitor. So there are some other studies that are looking at immunotherapy in advanced basal cell carcinoma. There's a neoadjuvant, adjuvant pembrolizumab study um, that's given up front for four doses, and then patients uh, get re resected, and then uh, pembrolizumab after resection. Uh, there's a study out of um, Johns Hopkins, I believe, looking at nivolumab either alone or plus a lag-3 antibody, relatlimib, or ipilimumab in patients with locally advanced or unresectable, um, uh, excuse me, locally advanced unresectable basal cell carcinoma or metastatic basal cell carcinoma. Summary and thoughts on immunotherapy and advanced basal cell carcinoma. The discontinuation rate of hedgehog inhibitors is very high. Although these agents are extremely uh, active in this disease. They are, they are toxic, as was alluded to earlier, and it's difficult to stay on these therapies long term. So an alternative therapy was desperately needed. And so semiplumab has demonstrated meaningful and durable responses in patients with locally advanced, as well as metastatic basal cell carcinoma in a prospective clinical trial. Importantly, responses can take time to develop. The toxicity profile is similar to PD-1 antibodies and other tumor types, so there's no surprises in terms of uh, treating this patient population. And semiplumab is now approved for the treatment of patients with locally advanced basal cell carcinoma as well as metastatic basal cell carcinoma that was previously treated with a hedgehog inhibitor therapy or for whom a hedgehog inhibitor therapy is not appropriate. And I am uh, ahead of time, which I guess is nice, and we'll move on to the, the final, which is the tumor board uh, part of the talk, which would be case-based uh, guidance on immunotherapy and basal cell carcinoma uh, and implications for dermatologic oncology teams. Dr. Kushlani. Thank you, Dr. Lewis, for this kind invitation and to Peerview for putting the session together. Um, I think it's critically important, and it was actually a very pleasant surprise to see an entire session with one of these satellite symposia being dedicated to basal cell carcinoma, which undoubtedly, as you've already heard, while is the most common cancer that we see worldwide, 
Um, when patients develop locally advanced and or metastatic disease, it in some ways almost becomes a taboo for a lot of these patients that we see in our clinical practice. Um, and now we have drugs, uh, we had drugs that worked and now we have some additional drugs in our armamentarium. And so questions that are being asked are, how do we best sequence these treatments? Which one should we start with? How long should we continue these treatments? So more from a practical aspect. So I'll try to walk you through some of these in three cases that we have. And um, again, it's one of those disclaimers that uh, we have some graphic pictures and uh, so may not be suitable for all audiences. So this is uh, a woman aged 63 years, no prior history of skin cancer, regular alcohol use, and she had a long-standing skin lesion that progressively increased with ulceration and then as you can visually see, destruction of the ear canal and then presents with moderate to severe pain, drainage, um, bleeding, and certainly ipsilateral hearing loss. A biopsy that was performed demonstrated nodular type of basal cell carcinoma. Um, she came to see one of the plastic surgeons uh, who obtained an MRI, and that demonstrated a six centimeter mass involving the ear, the external auditory canal, and the ipsilateral temporomandibular joint. And the tumor extended to the skull base, uh, but did not involve the dura. And the CT imaging of the neck as well as chest did not demonstrate any evidence of metastatic disease. So as is very obvious on this clinical picture, an extensive locally destructive tumor, as we tell our trainees, these are rodent ulcers. They like to continuously bury and dig deep into the areas that they started. So what is the appropriate treatment for this patient at this point in time? Should we consider definitive radiotherapy, um, surgery followed by radiation, hedgehog inhibitor therapy? Uh, based on the data that you've heard, semiplumab as an anti-PD-1 agent, should we consider chemotherapy? Or should we even go one step further and consider combination targeted therapy with the hedgehog inhibitor plus semiplumab? So anyway, so we'll open this discussion up. So Dr. Lewis, your thoughts on a case like this, what would you do if this patient came to the University of Colorado? Well, that patient I would certainly put into that category of locally advanced basal cell carcinoma. It's one of those, uh, how do you define a patient with locally advanced basal cell carcinoma? And it's one of those things, you know it when you see it, and that kind of is that. So um, I am certainly biased as a medical oncologist and would would favor systemic therapy and uh, looking at response rates and approvals, probably hedgehog inhibitor uh, in this situation. Dr. Patel, would you agree? Uh, I, I would agree, and I, I think as Dr. Lewis said, you don't need to really define this disease, but it is nice that we know with that type of extension, the risk of disease-specific death is quite high. And even as a surgeon, uh, wanting to try to obtain clear margins, the reality is your ability to do so in, in, in any true functional way in that European guidelines is this functionally critical disease and a clear margin is likely not to be occurred and even with the use of adjuvant radiation therapy, I'm not really sure what we're looking at here. So systemic therapy just seems to make the most sense. So I think what both of you bring up are points highlighting multidisciplinary discussion for patients just like this. And I think that is so key, particularly when patients present in an advanced setting, is how do we actually optimize their treatment protocol at the same time not losing sight of what the goals of our treatment are. Are the goals of our treatment in something like this cure? Is it durable disease control? 
Um, or do we believe that treatment in this situation is purely palliative and we are going to be unable to cure this patient? And I think, you know, uh, we, we are still learning more and more about this disease. So if you were to counsel her, Dr. Patel, would you tell her that, let's say starting with a hedgehog inhibitor that Dr. Lewis suggested, is your goal cure or palliation here? That's a great point that you bring up around what our goal of care for basal cell carcinoma is because it is different than other oncological tumors. Um, and I think that's why our, even the way we interpret data has to be a little bit, look at it through a different lens because these tumors, if we are able to have durable control, not necessarily complete response, but control of just the disease progression, that may be sufficient. And so I think discussing with the patient, at least our standpoint is, depending on what the deep functional destruction, the neurovascular potential destruction is, uh, would just be to control the ulceration, the bleeding, and have a quality of life impact so that uh, they're not living with that disease, rather than just saying we want a complete cure. Case. At least that's my initial starting point. Thought sure. Process. No, I think that's very reasonable, and that's exactly the way we approached it as well. So we started her on bismodegib at the standard dose of 150 milligrams daily. But given the extent of pain that she had and the extent of involvement, um, we made a multidisciplinary discussion to offer additional radiotherapy simultaneously. And we've now done this with several patients um, and the treatment concurrently is actually very safe. The radiation was both for local control as well as symptomatic improvement. As expected, she developed changes consistent with radiation dermatitis that were short-lived. And within four weeks of starting therapy, clearly identified a decrease in drainage and pain within that uh, time frame. So I suspect a lot of that improvement in her symptomatology was related to uh, the radiotherapy, because as Dr. Lewis and Dr. Patel have previously shown you, the, the kinetics of response that we see to hedgehog inhibitors tends to be fairly slow, um, again, quite different from what we see with other solid tumors. And this essentially sort of went through her staging process. So two weeks post-radiotherapy is the image on your left, um, still a fair bit of destruction, but you can actually now start seeing the opening of the external auditory canal. Then two months post-radiation, she still has some subacute changes of radiation dermatitis. Certainly most of her year, unfortunately, is destroyed. And then you look at seven months post-radiation, and mind you, she's still on bismodegib uh, during this time frame. Um, she has some remnant of the um, external pinna, but virtually nothing else there. She still has uh, ipsilateral hearing loss but overall no further obvious visible tumor, and certainly over a period of time, her radiographs were consistent with this improvement. And this is typically what we see. Um, the duration um, or the time to optimal response can actually be anywhere between six to 12 months in these patients, very unlike what we would see in cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma or in advanced melanoma, where a median time to response tends to occur fairly early. Uh, but as expected, this patient uh, developed toxicities of alopecia, dysguesia, significant muscle cramps, and then eventually weight loss. So we modified her regimen to a five days on, two days off regimen, um, which I think she did tolerate a little bit better. And, but on, and you know, over a period of time, because of a 25-pound weight loss over 10 months, um, she was asking for additional breaks in her treatment. Um, she did, we repeated her imaging, evolving treatment changes, some residual thickening without any obvious enhancement. And what you see again on her right side is whatever is remnant of the um, 
the external pinna, and her external auditory canal has almost closed completely from fibrosis at that site, but no obvious tumor mass and certainly no bleeding or drainage. Um, so we stopped her vismotigib after about 13 months of therapy. Dr. Lewis, would you have done the same thing for the toxicities that she experienced, or would you have tried to modify her dosing regimen? You know, it's an excellent question, and there, there's not a lot of great data to guide us. Typically, what I do for, for toxicity in, in, in patients on hedgehog inhibitors is I give them uh, treatment holidays. So just extended breaks and let the toxicities resolve, let them get back to a normal life, maybe get some of their taste back, but the muscle cramps stop. And if there's still clearly residual disease, then try to get them back on therapy and dose them uh, to tolerability again. Um, what the right, what the wrong thing to do, it's, it's not really clear, but, but drug holidays for toxicity I think are very important. Um, but once you, you know, obtain such a great response, being able to maintain off of therapy to see if there's even going to be disease progression or disease recurrence I, th I think is very reasonable and appropriate in this patient uh, has looked like they're not recurred. Correct. And she has actually done remarkably well. Um, response remains durable now almost five years in terms of her follow-up and otherwise doing well. So question for you, Dr. Patel, in terms of alopecia, is that a toxicity from a dermatology standpoint to hedgehog inhibition that's typically reversible? We generally see that when patients stop the medication, they will have some regrowth. There are patients, they may not get as robust of a regrowth back. They may have some permanent, depends on whether they're scarring, or sometimes they have other issues going on as well. But we generally advise patients that they will have regrowth. And now we actually have uh, the advent of other types of jack inhibitors, or other things we use for alopecia that we're beginning to say if they have, you know, totalis of the scalp and the tumor was on their trunk, then we feel comfortable treating that to, to help bolster that. But uh, usually that is with that drug holiday or ceasing treatment, they get that. Um, yeah, so empirically, as Dr. Lewis mentioned earlier, we often will modify their treatment regimens. Um, you know, and, and some of it, I think, was, if I may even use the term, off the seat of our pants, because it was not sort of derived pharmacokinetically or biologically with any specific rationale, because the half-life of ismodigib is actually quite long. It's four days, whereas sanidigib is even longer than that. So technically, one could argue that the modification that we did five days on and the weekends off um, may not have had much plausibility from a pharmacokinetic standpoint, but patients often feel quite well um, doing that, or at least um, mentally saying that I've taken a break from therapy. Now, there are trials that have tried to address this. The Mikey trial actually attempted to look at two specific intermittent schedules for patients. Um, patients were randomized to receive three months on, two months off, and on the other arm essentially received continuous six months of vismotigib and then they were followed with a two months on, two months off regimen. And really there was no major difference between those two, but patients did uh, functionally at least indicate that they felt a little bit better from a quality of life perspective. Yeah. So again, this is a different graphical representation of the hedgehog pathway inhibitor toxicities from an analysis specifically looking at bismodigib. And as you can see, the toxicities like alopecia, dysguesia, tend to peak right about the two-month mark on therapy, and then essentially, obviously, plateau out. It's sort of, I don't think you can ask a patient, how much worse is your taste? My taste is bad. And a lot of them simply say, um, a lot of food tends to start tasting very salty. And that is directly because of uh, 
uh, hedgehog pathway inhibition on and a direct effect on the taste buds. Um, and then certainly other gastrointestinal toxicities tend to be a little bit milder. Muscle spasms and muscle cramps are almost um, unpredictable for a lot of these patients and certainly a source of uh, significant distress to them. So it's very, very important from a quality of life perspective to keep that in mind. Yeah. Um, so this slide essentially summarizes the common toxicities and the potential um, interventions. Now muscle spasms can be treated with amlodipine, 5 to 10 milligrams per day. Dr. Lewis, have you tried that? Has that worked in your clinical practice? We haven't found a lot that really works. I think the thing that works best is, is drug holidays, as, as we alluded to. Um, you know, some of these things have, we've tried without too much success. I mean, um, you know, some of the patients are elderly that are on these and, and doing antihypertensive drugs like that, you know, is fraught with problems as well. Um, so in our experience, drug holidays is, is the key. I, ju I just wanted to make the point that um, talking about modifications and drug holidays and so forth, there isn't a dose reduction. The dose is the dose. It's Vismodege of 150 milligrams. It's not dose reduction. Thank you for clarifying that. And certainly, obviously, with the dysguesia comes associated weight loss, and um, she had a significant um, degree of weight loss. And we, we should keep that in mind, uh, because before we recognize it, certainly patients recognize it, um, and again, affects their quality of life. Yeah. Um, so then, you know, obviously, the question is, is there an optimal duration of treatment? So for this patient, we treated her for 13 months. Given that she achieved a CR probably around the six to seven month mark, should we actually stop their treatment based on depth of response? And these are again questions that we don't have great evidence-based answers to. In my clinical practice, I will often consider that, particularly if patients are having significant toxicity. We've already discussed the issue of defined breaks. We briefly touched on toxicities being reversible. And question again to both the panelists is, if this patient continued to have significant toxicity from bismodigib, should we actually consider switching to sanidigib or vice versa? If she had started with sanidigib first, should we switch to bismodigib um, or should we only consider that if someone has progressed? Is there any rationale to do that at, at all, Dr. Lewis? I, I think these are class effects of the medication. They, they're not... Uh, uh, drug specific, they're more class specific, so there's not, in my opinion, any utility of switching from one to the other. Dr. Patel, do you agree? I agree, and I think there's been a recent meta-analysis looking at reported side effects, maybe a, a, a little push towards Sony having, a, a, in some of the categories, a higher side effect profile, so it'd be hard to, to discuss with the patient with the data that we have that uh, they make the shift, and, and in my experience, when they're at that point, they're not looking to shift to another medication. Agree completely. So again, and you know, I, I bring these points up because we've seen that actually happen in clinical practice. Um, while I don't really have any argument for doing it for potential of better toxicity or tolerance, um, I think when I've seen it, where which I don't think should be done at all, is if somebody has progressed on one hedgehog inhibitor there's really no rationale to switch to an alternate hedgehog inhibitor. Um, so let's move on to a second case, another interesting case. This was in 2019, a 62-year-old male presented with a hard lump in the right axilla. And what he had described to us when we eventually saw him was recurrent and spontaneous drainage of clear fluid 
He had an attempt at surgery. It is unclear whether he had a tissue diagnosis prior to that, and we didn't have that pathology. And at surgery, he was told that there was something there that they tried to take off, uh, but it was not possible for a complete resection. And unfortunately, over a period of two years, he had recurrent infections with staphylococcus at that site, requiring hospital admission and antibiotic use with an open wound there. In 2020, a year later, he continued to have a non-healing wound, now with a foul-smelling discharge, and started to notice some degree of neuropathic pain in the right axilla. And subsequently, again, had an ad another attempt at surgery, and I clearly highlight this was an R2 attempted resection because the operative note says, when I went in, I saw a lot of gelatinous material with extensive muscle involvement. I tried to sort of scoop out where the description given, whatever I could. But at that time, pathology, uh, with a second consultative opinion, revealed infiltrative basal cell carcinoma with the classic immunophenotype with BEREP4 positivity and GATA3 positivity. Um, nothing really happened with this patient during that time frame, and then came to us somewhere around 2021. So as you can see down here, he had extensive right-sided supraclavicular adenopathy, and then on the bottom figure that you can see with the radiograph, cross-sectional CT, a large open wound with an extensive soft tissue mass within the right axilla. Um, he actually had tumor sequencing performed, and that demonstrated, as expected for BCC, a high tumor mutational burden and genomic alteration of the patch one gene. Again, very classic, very pathognomonic for this disease. And based on that, he was then started on bismodigib. He had a nice initial response, very similar to patient one, decreased pain, decreased drainage, uh, but then, as expected, significant toxicity. And this is a big guy, and he lost approximately 80 pounds over about eight months of therapy. So we, at that point, when we um, saw him again, you know, during that course of follow-up, um, he had actually started experiencing disease progression within the right supraclavicular area, and we re-biopsied that, confirmed that this indeed was similar disease, basal cell carcinoma, because there are reports that over time you can have changes that are akin to squamous cell carcinoma. So how often do you see that, Dr. Patel or Dr. Lewis? Have you all seen that commonly in your practice? Yeah, as a surgeon, we sometimes see tumors that may not be you know, the more the locally advanced, so there's multiple tumors, and we'll see one of them growing while the others are, are shrinking, and when we go back in biopsy or do a wedge resection of that area, or in my case, sometimes we're able to clear one area and not the other, and we analyze it, we often find that it's a squamoproliferative, basosquamous, or some type of transformation that has occurred, whether or not that it's pushed that cell lineage to that, or if that was just hiding under there and part of the growth and now had an opportunity to grow. Um, it's difficult to fully say, but these larger tumors, you know, we're only sampling one aspect of Correct. it, and so it's 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 tough even from the get-go to know. So I mean, but when we rebiopsy, it was again very classic infiltrative basal cell carcinoma. So that's when we made the decision, semiplumab uh, initiation, a second-line treatment. Semiplumab was already approved by then, and what you can clearly see here on the left side radiograph is the large supraclavicular node. Um, and then uh, 12 weeks or three months post semiplumab, significant response uh, with significant improvement, and the patient's large ulcerated tumor within the axilla had also started improving. So this patient continues on semiplumab, so a success story for a second-line treatment, and actually tolerating semiplumab very well. 
The key question, of course, is going to be how long or what is his duration of response going to be? And maybe we'll give an update um, at a future symposium on something like this. But um, he's certainly within those 30% of patients who has a very nice response. Let me ask Dr. Lewis a question. So, um, Carl, in, why do you think the response rate in basal cell carcinomas to immunotherapy is only about 30% um, when they have the highest tumor mutational burdens among all solid tumors? You know, when you compare melanoma, the response rates are about 40% to anti-PD-1 monotherapy, cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma, 45 to 50%, Merkel cell, 45 to 50%. I must admit I was a little underwhelmed from a basal cell carcinoma standpoint, despite molecular characteristics. Uh, I'll simply say I have no idea. Um, if we did, we'd fix it. So um, there, there's clearly more to uh, immunotherapy responses than tumor mutation burden. I think it correlates nicely in a lot of studies, but there's clearly other things going on. Um, and you know exactly what's happening with basal cell carcinoma versus just, for example, another keratinocyte carcinoma with squamous cell carcinoma. Um, it, it, there's tumor microenvironment differences, or you know, it's a, just ability for the immune system to get there. It, it's not entirely clear, in my view, but um, the responses do not appear to be as rapid as with cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma, and just the pure numbers are not as high as we see in, in that tumor type. Yeah, I, I think uh, Dr. Lewis has outlined it very nicely. Um, I, I'll add that as a surgeon, and I have, I have a hypothesis that I've said that as a surgeon, we see these tumors, and when we cut out squamous cell carcinoma tumors, and especially as a most surgeon, you get to see the histology right away. Um, oftentimes, you see a pretty robust, or what we call hot tumor, um, with squamous cell, and especially the angry squamous cells that you're worried about, and you've staged them, and you know they're worried, they, they, they have a big tumor microenvironment response infiltration going on. Basal cells live symbiotically with their hosts, so to speak. And when, when we biopsy them, when we cut them out, um, it just seems quiet or cold. And I, I really think that that's part of the reason, depending on which specific tumor, you know, if we really looked at all of them and looked at their histology and maybe compared, maybe that would give us some sign. But I, I believe that in a way to uh, as Dr. Lewis said, uh, impact the tumor microenvironment or create some inflammatory milieu that would boost us in the right way, we might see some boost. I, I think that's a very, very plausible hypothesis. One of the other ones that has been proposed is because the vast majority or almost all basal cells have mutations that involve exclusively the patch one gene or occasionally the smoothened homolog gene, they tend to be very homogenous in terms of their cell of origin despite the fact that they have a high tumor mutational burden from UV damage, that is not what potentially is driving the tumor. It's actually the patch one mutation that is causing the basal cells to proliferate. And therefore, as you correctly point out, they may not be as heterogeneous from a tumor mutational antigen or tumor presenting antigen standpoint, but that's one of the proposed hypotheses as well. So here's case number three. This is a 55-year-old female. Um, no real comorbid conditions. She had a basal cell resected from her mid-back about seven years prior. We didn't have details available. Three years later, so now four years ago, she developed a recurrent nodular lump at the surgical scar that had progressively increased. And for a variety of reasons, a lot of them being personal preference and then certainly some pandemic-related issues, no medical attention for over four years. And this, this one actually surprised me uh, because a lot of times we identify these patients 
with head and neck tumors for social isolation, other psychosocial issues. Um, this was a lady who continued to work, was very active, and just essentially in some ways said it was on my back, I could rarely see it, it didn't bother me, and therefore I didn't seek medical attention. But eventually when she came to us, um, it was a 10 by 6 centimeter clinically exophytic mass that started to bleed easily, and that's what brought her to medical attention. And she also had on her back, this was right in the mid-upper back, and then she also had a multitude of several erythematous superficial ulcers at multiple other sites of her back that were consistent with multifocal basal cell carcinoma. So what you see here on the left side is the um, uh, direct gross picture of that as a photograph, and then what you see on the right side, again, cross-sectional imaging of her CT with the tumor essentially right here. But you can see a nice little plane uh, between that and the uh, deep muscles, the paravertebral muscles, so theoretically this is still a potentially resectable tumor. Um, so Dr. Patel, your thoughts on something like this, would you send it to the operating room right away given the size of the tumor? I think that we would at least consider with this imaging, if this was the only tumor that we would have a discussion around what surgery would entail, what reconstruction would entail. But uh, I have paused when you're talking about multiple other lesions and how are you going to tackle that whole game plan? Um, are you going after, I tell patients, once you cut one, uh, I feel like you're committing yourself to cutting all of your tumors, and if we're making that commitment now with somebody like this, uh, that's, that's a tough path to, to follow. Exactly, and that, that's precisely what sort of drove our thinking in this patient. I mean, number one, she would it, this is certainly not considered an unresectable tumor. She would require the appropriate reconstruction. Any skilled plastic surgeon could certainly do that and assist us with that. It was the multifocal nature of her disease that sort of made us pause at that point in and time. It should be that that reconstruction, when you have multifocal, uh, a large flap in that area, you're really running into a problem of recurrence along the scar line, moving those tumors into place that, that I'm worried about. Excellent point. So obviously this was multidisciplinary evaluation. She saw our surgical oncology. She saw us in medicine. She saw a radiation oncologist. She'd already seen dermatology. And we made the recommendation for upfront systemic therapy. When she heard about toxicity of hedgehog inhibition, she vehemently refused, primarily to toxicity concerns, said, I cannot go out um, you know, with hair loss. I'm very active with my work and very, very legitimate concerns uh, from a quality of life standpoint. So that's when we discussed simiplimab as an alternate option, given that um, you have a little bit of leeway in the official labeling um, to discuss when hedgehog inhibition as frontline may not be considered an appropriate frontline option. So we were able to start her on simiplimab. So after the first dose, there certainly was some shrinkage of the tumor. So this was something that responded actually fairly quickly. Importantly, her bleeding improved very quickly once immunotherapy was started. After four doses, which is 12 weeks of therapy in the middle, and then after six doses, um, had significantly improved over time. And she was tolerating therapy very well with just some mild dry mouth. So what you can see now on the left side, significant shrinkage. You still see some residual tumor there at the 12-week mark, mark post-simiplimab. Uh, and while she continued at about six months, clinically we started noticing some greater nodularity. So while the actual diameter of the tumor had not increased, it certainly was becoming more nodular, more sort of volcano-type appearing, clinically giving me the impression that she had started progressing at this point in time. So now for the panel, what would you discuss with her after what appears to be clinical progression? Should you give her a hedgehog inhibitor? Should you send her to radiation or surgery? 
Should you combine inhibition with radiation, com escalate to combination immunotherapy, or a clinical trial? I will tell you that the other erythematous lesions have significantly improved and pretty much disappeared. Carl, what would you do? Well, I think that's one of the keys to the situation is the other disease has appeared to respond as well. Uh, she wasn't a fan of hedgehog inhibitor to begin with. I doubt she'd be uh, a fan now. And um, it may be more amenable to, to local therapy, so doing something either like radiation or surgery uh, might be appropriate at this point. Although there's really no data in sort of using these things neoadjuvantly, so to speak, um, she certainly has had a, at least a, a good partial response, whether she's going to continue to benefit. So maybe doing a local intervention at this point would be reasonable. Dr. Patel, would you take her to the operating room now? I, I think I would. I, I agree with Dr. Lewis's assessment. I think that this is a much more manageable lesion. I think you have much more reconstructive options now. You may even be able to do a primary closure and easily add adjuvant radiation quickly if you, if you wanted to. Um, I think that would probably be my first uh, or, or leading uh, thought process at this time point. I'm curious to ask both of you, uh, do you consider in this type of situation ever, uh, we've talked about changing hedgehog options, do you consider this early in the game but changing PD-1 options from simiplumab to... No, I would use exactly the same principles that we discussed previously is there's really no benefit in any of the diseases that we treat, at least in cutaneous oncology, and to my knowledge in any other tumors as well, of switching from one anti-PD-1 agent to an alternate. Um, I don't think there's any biologic rationale to doing that. Certainly, if, if there was a clinical trial that considered an alternate immune checkpoint inhibitor through a different path, for example, an anti-CTLA-4 or anti-CTLA-4 plus anti-PD-1, I would certainly consider it, but probably not in this case. In this case, we, our thought process was exactly how both of you pointed out, is that she's responded at virtually all of her sites and now is demonstrating uh, potentially oligocyte uh, progression. So that's essentially what we offered her, surgery and radi or radiation. You know what's interesting about this that I just realized, uh, compared to a squamous cell carcinoma, to see the other sites respond, which is not usually what we see with patients with squamous cell carcinoma, they continue to develop low-risk other primaries, or those ones do not respond. Um, and, and it's interesting to see and heard that these other low-risk uh, basal cells did respond. An excellent point, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so obviously here for immunology, oh, Dr. Just, Lewis. If, if I can ask, because there is a question um, that came in, and it kind of relates to this, about the role of neoadjuvant immunotherapy. And Dr. Patel, you talked about resecting this. You know, kind of the lack of data of this sort of neoadjuvant approach, making these things resectable. Do you change your surgical margins based on what the tumor looks like now? Because we don't really know that it shrinks in a homogeneous way. Um, so how do you approach that when you would take this patient to, to surgery? Yeah, that, that's the, the difficult um, point that has been brought up and it's come through our, our knowledge from neoadjuvant hedgehog inhibitor and wasn't as exciting of data that we would have liked to see in, in changing of the surgical plan. Um, I think the mechanism of action matters with hedgehog inhibitor therapy. I certainly am less likely to change my margins because the the, the the mechanism of action, we know that when we stop therapy, oftentimes the tumors will recur, recur in areas that have responded well, sometimes it will not. With IO therapy, I think I'm much more likely to consider a smaller uh, resection margin, but as a trained, uh, as a Mohs surgeon, as, uh, and the European and head and neck colleagues that I know who 
understand and utilize the tubage and tort technique. I think this is a great case where we really have to have that surgical comfort with pathology to do complete margin analysis. So if you're going to resect or change your margin, you need to look at 100% margin. Um, but looking at that picture, I probably would start off with a smaller margin uh, just in the interest of the repair. Um, but it's not that big of a, a tumor that maybe now that with the other lesions gone there, you just go for the, the whole whack and then you do the, the, the big flap that you can now do because the other tumors are gone. And you, do you delay repair until you get those margins, ensure, they're negative, ensure that they're negative? Absolutely, absolutely. And that's the beauty of if you have a multidisciplinary team, or a Mohs surgeon or a pathologist who can help you do NFOS processing, so you're looking at that, that, that delay is not that long. You can even do it the same or uh, the next day just with the right setup, with the right pre-planning. Great. So that actually looks at the fifth point that I raised there is, you know, what's the role or is there a role of neoadjuvant immunotherapy in these patients with potentially resectable BCC. As Dr. Lewis mentioned earlier, there's an ongoing trial that's attempting to answer that question. I think the more provocative question here is, should immunotherapy actually now be considered prior to hedgehog inhibitor therapy for patients who have advanced disease? In other words, locally advanced disease or metastatic disease. Thoughts from the panel, Dr. Lewis. Would you consider upfront immunotherapy for all of your patients before hedgehog inhibition? Well, it's sort of a loaded question in the sense <laughs> that the FDA approval is, <laughs> you know, a second line. But, um, you know, one of the things is it's whether it's inappropriate. Now, how do you define inappropriate for hedgehog inhibitor? You know, this patient, for example, um, you know, just adamantly refused to take hedgehog. So um, I... I we simply don't know what the response rate, and that, and that is, a, and gets back to a question about, you know, response rate of, of basal cell carcinoma versus squamous cell carcinoma, for example. You know, this is a second-line agent. Uh, this is second-line study, so we don't really know what the response rate to, to immunotherapy is as a frontline agent in basal cell carcinoma. It may be different. We don't know. Um, so I, don't, I certainly don't think it's wrong, but currently the approval is as a second-line. And then, of course, um, you know, this, if this patient had not done what she did, but continued to respond and actually achieved a clinical and radiographic complete response, and let's say we even biopsied that back to prove that, would you be comfortable stopping therapy? I think with immunotherapy, we can stop in most patients, and it's durable. They certainly need uh, watch closely, but extrapolating from other tumor types, that, particularly in cutaneous malignancies, that, that these responses can be durable. Now, I think these are important questions that will undoubtedly continue to keep coming up as we advance our knowledge of immunotherapy for advanced basal cell. I think one of the distinguishing features for BCC is it is rarely life-threatening. You, you have time to make these decisions. So even if you wanted to give the patient the benefit of doubt and continue systemic therapy to truly allow the disease biology to declare itself, you actually have time to do it. Whereas in other diseases, such as melanoma or Merkel cell, where these drugs have made great forays and great advances, we may actually not have that luxury of time. It's gonna be interesting to see in patients, uh, looking at this patient who had multifocal disease responding, we're going to start thinking about those Gorlin's patients who Correct. have multiple disease but not aggressive locally advanced, but tens, hundreds of tumors. Where does this all fit in now? True. And I've actually treated a patient with Gorlin's, ah. eventually with second-line simiplumab as well, 
but we can certainly discuss that later. So again, just a very broad overview of understanding the spectrum of immune toxicity. So this can be a localized system-based problem, or as you can see on this, it can virtually affect any system of the human body. And certainly the more common ones that we see, um, as outlined by Dr. Lewis previously, include gastrointestinal toxicity, fatigue, um, sometimes dry mouth uh, due to inflammation of the salivary glands, and certainly endocrine toxicity. So that's not trivial because many of these patients may require chronic thyroid replacement therapy or in selected cases, even steroid replacement therapy. So these need to clearly be discussed with the patient. What I tend to give the, the sort of tips for the team, I call this sort of ETA, not expected time of arrival, but more of evaluate the comorbidities and potential contraindications for checkpoint inhibition. I think one important thing is age is absolutely not a contraindication but you need to understand whether the patient may tolerate toxicity. Think about your goals and duration of treatment. We discussed that earlier in our session. And certainly anticipation of toxicities, because virtually every toxicity with these drugs is immune in nature. Education and two-way communication is absolutely critical for these patients, and infusion reactions are distinctly uncommon. When you actually have toxicity from immunotherapy, you treat early, you treat aggressively, um, importantly, if they have grade three or greater toxicity, really key is stop the drug or interrupt the drug, and then start steroids with a slow taper over four to six weeks. And in selected cases, you may need to escalate your immunosuppression with infliximab or other agents, um, including mycophenolate. And it's important to note that steroid use for toxicity is not believed to hamper the therapeutic effect of these drugs. And finally, again, pillars of toxicity management, the prevention and the anticipation, the detection with good two-way communication, the prompt treatment, and subsequently the monitoring of improvement and the decisions whether or not you need to retreat at that point in time. So again, highlighting what Dr. Patel said earlier, with these patients with locally advanced and or metastatic disease, we truly need multidisciplinary care. It's not just me as the medical oncologist or Dr. Patel as the surgeon. It truly takes this village to take care of these patients. And I cannot underscore the importance of nursing staff, our psychotherapists, our social workers, and uh, certainly our advanced practice professionals as part of this team. So I thank you for your attention. Back to you, Dr. Lewis. Well, thank you very much. That was uh, a nice way to conclude that. Um, I think one of the questions that we got on the, the iPad, I think parlays very nicely into to how you ended that. And maybe you can comment on this, Dr. Patel. You know, what are some of the barriers to effective multidisciplinary care when treating more advanced patients? Where, where do you see those barriers existing? I think one of the biggest barriers is that, um, especially for a disease like cutaneous uh, keratinocyte carcinomas, especially squamous cell, basal cell, um, is that we haven't had decades of, of time to know this disease process and have different specialists work together routinely. It's not uncommon that I see that the tumors are treated two or three times before uh, they involve more than one specialist. Um, and I think that's really upon us to think of that multidisciplinary approach from the get-go, that if you're a head and neck surgeon, you've talked to a, a, a dermato-oncologist and a medical oncologist, and you're thinking about what happens if, if surgery doesn't go right. Um, certainly, they're working with radiation oncology. You know, we get into those siloed practice patterns, and this is really a disease that has a Venn diagram approach. The patient touches all of these 
providers. At our institution, uh, it's nice when you have uh, someone like me with surgical experience and medical dermatology and interest in medical oncology that the patients are informed that they're going to be seeing all these patients or at least thinking about this process. Um, that certainly helps bring that barrier down. And so that's why I say if you're in that setting or if you're not in the community, um, get to know those providers so you can bounce off these cases so that you're thinking about things that maybe wouldn't pop into your head to, to consider from the get-go. Yeah, I, I think that that's exactly right, and that's where I view it, too. You know, we're, we're fortunate in the, being at a, an academic center, working so closely with our dermatologic surgeons, head and neck surgeons, general surgeons, and, you know, they see what we do in a day-in and day-out basis. But I'm, with cutaneous malignancies, it's, it's not so common that, that that's practice elsewhere. And so these are tumor types that have traditionally not been treated with medical therapies. We haven't had great therapies for these tumor types historically. Um, and so there is this learning curve. Uh, I, I, I do think that we're seeing some changes, fortunately, that we're seeing surgeons more willing to refer patients to, you know, to try, try systemic therapy first um, and save patients big surgeries. But I, I think that, um, that it's just kind of traditional. This was... Uh, a tumor type, you know, that was predominantly treated by the surgeon. Yeah. So, and it's been clumped together with other tumors. Mm-hmm. You think about squamous cell has been treated as a head and neck tumor uh, for decades until we really separated it as a cutaneous malignancy and not just a squamous cell of the aerodigestive tract. So, any thoughts, Dr. Kushalani? No, I completely agree. I think, again, for the patients that we see, again, we tend to be a little bit more biased because um, these patients come to us with comorbidities. Um, locally advanced disease, it's certainly they, they require our expertise, but the supportive care aspect is so important for them. You, know, you have toxicities with hedgehog inhibition, you have immune toxicities with semiplomab and similar drugs, and education and reassurance to these patients I think is critically, critically important. And, you know, multi-D management, um, you know, with surgeons, with radiation oncologists, um, so the last patient that I mentioned, she has started radiation, and I anticipate she'll have a very nice response to that. That will likely be durable, but as Dr. Patel, you pointed out, whether she develops recurrence of the multifocal nature of her disease, and if she does, then do we re-challenge her with semiplomab at that point in time, or actually try to switch to something else? Time will tell us. Here is, any role for combined hedgehog inhibitors and semiplomab in aggressive metastatic disease? So, Dr. Kushner, what's the data, if any, for, for combination? So, for combination, I am not aware of any published or presented data for that. There is a trial that has been initiated. Um, I'm almost certain it's in uh, Switzerland with Reinhard Dumer's group, where they are looking at a small pilot study of 20 patients that will get anti-PD-1 therapy, and they will get pulsed sonidegib. I think it's two weeks on, two weeks off is the schedule. You know, but I think the, the key point that you made is, is do these dise- does this disease really behave in an explosive fashion? And I am not convinced at all that it does, unless it is um, a tumor that is very close to a critical structure, for example, you know, a large tumor in the neck that has risk of erosion into the carotid. In those situations, I would actually involve potentially radiotherapy for management as well. Um, so I think we'll have to, there's more data certainly to come in that. But I'd be a little careful of just simply, you know, adding drug A and drug B without understanding, you know, what's the biological pl- plausibility of response, and is there going to be synergistic and not simply additive effect? 
Yeah. I think there, there is a small study out of Stanford by Dr. Chang yeah, that showed it's elite safe. I think it was Vismo and Pembro that, that she used in that study, but it's such small numbers you can't make really heads or tails of whether, you know, what the efficacy is. So um, I think at this point they're, they're single agents. We are getting to the end, but just as a couple, uh, one or two more questions. Uh, Dr. Patel, a little bit of a loaded question here. Which therapy is considered the most effective treatment for basal cell carcinoma? So. I'm an outlier in most dermatologists and, and Mohs, and probably that's why I, I make friends with medical oncologists more than I do with my own colleagues. I think we overtreat our tumors, you know, the most common tumors with surgery. It is a good treatment, but I don't think uh, every treatment needs to have surgery. In fact, my general thought process is this is a cancer, needs to be staged or assessed as one. And if the risk for recurrence is low or the patient's profile has a high tolerability to allow the tumor to recur if it does, then we should consider an option like what our European colleagues do. I love imiquimod, topical therapies work really well, photodynamic therapy, other types of less invasive, better cosmetic profiles really have shot up now that I'm out of training for so long uh, as my go-to for low-risk basal cell carcinomas now. Um, many other people, rightfully so, from a recurrent, we're looking just at the data. The best recurrence risk prevention is from surgical treatment. But it's a slippery slope for a 32-year-old patient to have their first basal cell cut out, and they have five more decades of life that they like will have multiple treatments. And we're thinking about that long-term path. Yeah. I I thought that was pretty much a softball for you. Surgery, of course, that's the best thing. Uh, but uh, you know the, That's why I'm here and not at the, uh, the uh, Mohs College meeting being asked to say that. But I, you know, from more of a medical oncology perspective, where we tend to see the, the, you know, the locally advanced and just you know, not cutting half of somebody's face off and giving yeah. systemic therapy a try um, in those cases that require big surgeries. So I think we'll just end it with this question, and I'll, I'll turn the tables uh, a little bit. And should the guidelines be changed so that PD-1 inhibitors be used as first line for locally advanced instead of second line? So you asked that earlier, so I'll turn it back. So um, personally, I would have no objections to that. because, but, but do I have data to back that up? The answer is a resounding no, I don't. But do I believe that frontline therapy with immunotherapy may be better for patients, uh, may be better from a quality of life perspective? Personally, I think yes, uh, given the toxicity of hedgehog inhibition. But one cannot argue with the efficacy of hedgehog inhibition, um, you know, minus the toxicity profile. That being said, we have to be cautious before this is a slippery slope because a small percentage of our patients on immunotherapy can develop life-altering toxicity. So that's not trivial either. Do I believe that the second line, let, let me sort of answer the question in a different way, sort of phrasing the question in my mind again is, do I think there will be compromise of efficacy by switching hedgehog inhibition to the second line? I don't think so because these are targeted agents. The target is still there. That's still the driver of the tumor. In some ways, I liken this to uh, MAP kinase pathway inhibitors in advanced melanoma. They respond equally well frontline or second line or third line, depending on when you use it. Um, so I don't think we would compromise toxicity, I mean, compromise efficacy 
by altering this. See? Yeah. I think that's an excellent point. And so with that, we're, I think we're out of time, and I, I thank everybody for, for coming, uh, both in person and online. Thank you very much. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash SDX 860. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Sanofi.